first speaker doesn't need much of an introduction. The Reverend Rob Rinfro is president and publisher of Good News Magazine, a longtime pastor at the Woodlands Methodist Church in the Woodlands, Texas. Rob was at the center of the founding and launch of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and so we are here because of his vision and perseverance. Rob is a graduate of Rice University and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, the author of several books, most recently, Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises in the Uncertainties of Life, published by Seedbed. Rob has served as the preaching pastor at the Woodlands Methodist Church for over 25 years, where he's also uh, led Quest Men's Fellowship, a Bible study that routinely draws hundreds on Tuesday mornings and Sunday evenings. Quest has sparked the creation of small discipleship groups and dozens of local, national, and international missions programs. So that's the resume stuff. The heart stuff is this. I love Rob and Peggy Renfro. I love them, both of them. I love their hearts. I love their steady steering of the ship. I love their unique way of living out the faith. I love Rob's uh, sense of humor. And if you're looking for a story, anything, anything, throw out a word and Rob's got a story for you. <laughs> I can't wait for you to hear from him today. And as Rob comes to share, I want to invite you to stand as you're able. And as we we're going to read together the theme passage from the Apostle Paul. So will you stand? I'm going to, it'll be a, a kind of a call and response, so I want you to be not Carolyn, okay? <laughs> what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will you not, not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Will you welcome Rob to the stage? All right. All right. Thank you so much. Have a seat. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, Peggy and I love you. Sometimes I think Peggy may love you more than she does me, but that would be, that would be very understandable if she did. It is so good to be here with you and to look out and see people that I've known and loved and admired really now for decades. So grateful for all of you that you're here, that you are willing to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, and that you are committed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of all who will believe in him. 
1875, a remarkable woman was born. Her name was Mary Bethune. Both of her parents had been slaves. She herself, at the age of five, began to work in the fields. But she took a real interest in her own education, and she began to attend a small, one-room, segregated schoolhouse in South Carolina. After she graduated from that little school, she took a huge step, and she traveled all the way to Chicago to attend the Moody Bible Institute. And after graduating from Moody, she returned to the South, and she began to teach. But she wasn't done yet. She believed that God had placed a calling on her life. She believed that she was to found a college in the South for other young African Americans so that they might get a first-rate education and step into the extraordinary lives that God had created them to live. And so at the age of 29, 1904, Daytona Beach, Florida, Mary Bethune founded what is today Bethune-Cookman University. And for two decades, she used her remarkable skills to inspire her students to dream their own dreams, overcome their own obstacles, fight and win their own battles. And every year, she would send her students out into the world with these words at their graduating exercises. Faith ought not to be a puny thing. If you believe, have faith like a giant. And may God grant you not peace, but glory. I love that line. May God grant you not peace, but glory. It was Mary Bethune's way of telling her students, you can have an easy life or you can have a great life. You can have a comfortable life or you can have a glorious life, but you cannot have both. Now, which do you think you were created for, peace or glory? Now, I will ask you the same question. Why do you think you're here? To live a life that's peaceful and comfortable or to live a life that is great and glorious so that our God might be known, so that all men and women would be drawn to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Now, if you believe that you are here to do something that is glorious for the kingdom of God, the question that occurs is this. What does glory look like in the kingdom of God? Now, fortunately, we do not have to wonder because Jesus told us the last week of his earthly life, he told his disciples, John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And immediately he talks about what? Not his power, not his miracles, not even his resurrection. Immediately he begins to talk about his death. He tells his disciples, boys, you want to see what glory looks like? then open your eyes because it is about to be on display. In the kingdom of God, glory looks like a man whose back has been shredded by 39 lashes. In the kingdom of God, glory looks like a man whose brow is bleeding because a crown of thorns has been pressed into his head. In the kingdom of God, glory looks like a man hanging on a cross. 
It looks like a man who would rather die than be unfaithful to his father, would rather die than be unfaithful to his mission. Glory in the kingdom of God looks like a man willing to die the most shameful and painful death that the Roman Empire can devise. So the unwanted and the unworthy will know that there is a God who loves them. So they will know that their sins can be forgiven. And so they will know that a new and transformed life is possible. You want to know what glory looks like? It looks like sacrifice. It looks like paying a price for what you believe in. It looks like being willing to suffer for the glory of God and to bring his grace into this world. There was a time when the apostle Paul and his ministry was being questioned in Corinth. It was strange because many of these Corinthians he'd led to faith himself. But some men had come and had begun to teach among the men that Paul referred to as the super apostles. And these men, uh, they were different than Paul. Their speaking abilities were quite impressive. They were trained in the ways of the culture. There was a certain gravitas to their person and the Corinthians compared these super apostles to, to Paul, and frankly, Paul did not measure up well. And they begin to think, maybe that's what an apostle looks like. Maybe that's what greatness looks like. Maybe that's what glory looks like. And Paul finds himself in the strange position of having to provide an apologetic for his ministry. And he says, you want my credentials? You know why my ministry is apostolic, why it is great and glorious, why it can be trusted? Five times I was given 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Three times I've been shipwrecked. Once I was stoned by an angry mob and left for dead. On many occasions I've gone without sufficient food and water. And many nights I could not sleep because I was worried about you because I got on my knees with tears on my face and I cried out to God for you that he would give you what you needed, his grace, his comfort, his strength, his truth. Do you know what makes a ministry great and glorious? It is a man, it is a woman pouring out their lives for others. There is no other way to live a glorious life in the kingdom of God than sacrifice and suffering and giving our lives for those who need the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome. That's how we are more than conquerors, by giving our lives for the glory of God to a world that is in desperate need. Now, you and I, we'd all hope to be at a different place at this time. We had hoped that the protocol would have been passed and we would be in our new happy denominational home. <laughs> and failing that, we had hoped that the bishops would agree to some kind of just and fair resolution that we might depart. And failing that, we certainly had hoped that those who have lectured us for the last two decades about having a heart of peace would not now be demanding their piece of flesh on our way out. But we don't overcome by getting the protocol passed. We don't overcome by holding general conference. We don't overcome by the bishops being good to us. We overcome when we are better to the bishops than they are to us. Yeah. We overcome by refusing to be bitter. 
We overcome by not being fixated on what this delay means for our churches, and instead we are focused on what the world needs from our churches. Instead of being fixated on what the bishops demand from us, we overcome when we remain focused on what God demands from us. And when we decide that our way forward, wherever we end up, is following a man who took up a cross, shed his blood, and gave his life for those that no one else wanted and no one else cared about because God loves them and wants them. That's how we overcome. Now, I have... I have thought on many occasions that the culture that the early church was born into is very similar to our culture. The, the culture of Rome, it was a culture that was hedonistic. It was a culture that worshipped power. It was a culture that was cynical about religion. Yes, they had their gods and they went through the formalities, but no one looked to their gods for meaning and purpose. Uh, they looked to their gods in a utilitarian way. They looked to their gods to get blessings so that they might live their best life now. Um, and life was cheap. Babies born unwanted because they were deformed or because they were female were regularly left in the woods or left at dumps trash heaps to die from the elements, exposure, or to be mauled to death by wild animals. People would do this, and there was no stigma attached. There was nothing seemed to be wrong with that. That was the culture that this early church, this small sect of Christ followers, was born into. No political power, no cultural cachet, primarily uneducated and poor, looked down upon, and worst of all, they worshiped and they proclaimed a crucified Messiah. Crucifixion being the epitome of weakness and foolishness. This is who they proclaimed as Lord to a culture, to an empire that worshiped power. And yet the most amazing thing happened. Within 300 years, a Roman emperor declared that he now had faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And within four centuries, the empire had made Christianity its official religion. And historians estimate that as many as half of all the residents within the Roman Empire had personal faith in Christ. How did this happen? How did this group of nobodies, no power, no clout. How did these people conquer? How did they overcome? How did they transform their culture? Simply stated, they did it by living the way that Jesus lived, by loving the way that Jesus loved, by serving the way that Jesus served, and when they were persecuted and executed by dying the way that Jesus died, praying for their persecutors and praying for those who were putting them to death. And how did they love and serve and sacrifice? Well, those unwanted babies, because they were deformed or because they were female, female to such a point that Roman households had 50% more boys than girls. They would go out at night into the woods. They would go out at night into the trash dumps and they would listen for their cries. And they would find them and take them into their arms and bring them into their homes and raise them 
as their own. And in times of plague, when Romans would regularly take those in their family that had become diseased and set them outside in the streets to die, Christians not only cared for those who were diseased within their homes, their family members, they would go out into the streets and find these non-believers who had been discarded by their families, bring them into their homes and care for them as if they were their own. Many Christians contracting the disease and dying in the process. They gave welfare to believers and also to non-believers. They gave welfare, financial assistance, not only to men but also to women, even though the Romans gave welfare only to men. They were faithful to their marriage vows. They were kind to their children. They loved their enemies. And the most amazing thing happened. These power-mad, hedonistic, cynical Romans. They looked at this despised sect, these nobodies, and the way they lived, and they saw, they saw life. They saw real life, not just a different kind of life, but a better kind of life. They saw life the way it was meant to be lived. And these Romans who had lived for pleasure and power and who were as empty as those values always leave people. They looked at these early Christians and they said, if there is a power, if there's a person, if there is a God who can cause people to live that way, I want that power. I want that person. I want that God. And the one who had been despised became treasured and the glory and the grandeur of Rome paled in comparison to the greatness and the glory of a man hanging on a cross who gave his life for all. And the result was the one who had been despised became proclaimed as Lord and Savior. Friends, I do not believe that we will get our culture's ear by preaching better sermons, building bigger buildings, running snazzier marketing campaigns, or by winning political victories. I believe we will get the ear of our culture when people think of the word Christian, and instead of thinking, oh, I know those people, those are the angry people, the judgmental people, those are the people who all vote the same way. If when they hear the word Christian, they say, oh, I know who those are. Those are the ones in my community who care about foster kids aging out of the system, 60% of whom will be dead, homeless, or in jail within two years of graduating. Those are the ones who care about those kids that nobody has ever cared about. Uh, oh, Christians, those are the ones who are feeding people under the bridges. Those are the ones who are building homes for the homeless. Those Christians, those are the ones who care about single mothers in my community. Those are the ones who are reaching out and helping addicts in my community. I know what Christian means. It means people who love and care and sacrifice and pour their lives out for others. I, I know who they are. Now, it is easier to preach better sermons it's easier to build big buildings. It's easier to win political battles. It's, it's easier to run a snazzy marketing campaign unless you're the United Methodist Church who only knows how to run a marketing campaign that's embarrassing. <laughs> that was not in the script. I may hear from Walter when that's over. <laughs> it's easier doing those things 
than pouring out your life and sacrificing and ministering to messy, hurting people. But that's okay. You're not called to easy. You're called to glory. You've got difficult things to do, some of us, to get to this new place that we all look forward to being. It's going to be hard for you. That's okay. You weren't made for easy. It's going to be hard to minister to this culture in a way that they will hear us, to love the way that Jesus loved and serve and live the way that he did. That's okay. Alan Bozak, the South African pastor and theologian, was once asked about the final judgment. He had fought against apartheid. And he said that he thought maybe the final judgment would be different than we often imagine. He said, I can see us standing before Jesus, and he will look at us, and he will say, where are your scars? And we will look at him, at his feet, at his hands, at his side, and then we will look at ourselves, and we will say, but Lord, we have no scars. And Jesus will say to us, was there nothing worth fighting for. I do not want to scar anyone, but I'm willing to be scarred. I'm willing to pay a price. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to lay down my life for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, for the gospel that alone is the salvation of this world. You and I have difficult things to do, but that's okay, because remember this, Faith ought not to be a puny thing. If you believe, have faith like a giant. And may God grant you and me. May God grant us not peace, but glory. God bless you all. I'm here backstage at the Global Gathering with Rob Renfro, who's just come off the stage after a rousing opening to this gathering, talking about Faith not ought to be a puny thing. Mary right. Bethune. Mary Bethune. Right. Yeah, I've always uh, loved that quote. Uh, I love her story. It's uh, more detailed than what I was able to give. All the obstacles she went through, just how little she had to work with, and was able to pull all this off. Um, but yeah, a great challenge to realize we're not here for peace and comfort. We're here to do great and glorious things for our Lord and Savior Jesus. What do you think glory looks like in these days for for us? Well, what I said in my talk is that uh, when Jesus defines uh, glory, uh, he points to his death, to his being willing to die on the cross. It looked like the epitome of shame and powerlessness, but in uh, reality, it was the most powerful act that the world has ever seen, one man dying uh, for others. And so that that's not nearly as popular a message as uh, what we sometimes hear, that uh, glory is name it and claim it and God giving you your every desire. But uh, we're not here um, to be blessed nearly as much as we're here to be a blessing to others. And when we look back on our lives and we present our lives to God, no one is honored because of what they have. They're honored for what they gave. And so glory in the kingdom of God looks like giving and serving and caring for those that others don't care about. Yeah, we, we're so focused, I think, in this season on trying to get everything put together and still right. kind of kind of have a pain-free uh, move yeah. into the new right. thing. Yeah. And, and what we're learning is 
that's not possible. Right. Yeah, I think in different ones of us, depending on where we are and who our bishop is, will have uh, different amounts of pain, if we use that word, uh, that we'll have to endure to get to this new place. Uh, we've worked and worked, Bob. Um, we worked and worked to get a, an agreement that was fair, that was not costly for anyone, uh, that didn't uh, inflict pain on anyone. Um, but that's, that's never been the ultimate uh, desire of the other side. Uh, we have quit trying to win years ago. We've made the argument, let's, we, I, the way I described it, we're in a cage match and the, um, we can't escape each other and we can't quit fighting. And the only way to win is to stop, open the door and let us both go out. And we've been willing to do that for many years. But the other side, 2019 is the perfect example of uh, the other side thinking they could win. And so they refused to honor the agreement that we had made, that we need to find a way to separate. They brought back the same plan. They've been voted down in 2016, tried it again, lost again. And now general conference being delayed is just another way that one side is trying to use politics to win. And it does create pain. And that's not us, but they've created an environment that we're in. I loved in your talk when you were talking about the Roman world, and we've talked about this before, you and mm-hmm. I, um, about the stuff you're referring to right. was really a lot of stuff from Alan Kreider's work um, on the patient ferment of the early church, which is one of the books I think everybody should yeah. read. Good. And and I I was struck by the idea that we will not get the culture's ear until people think of Christians as those who care about people nobody right. cares about. Yeah. And so, in effect, I think one of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking was mm-hmm. we need a rehabituation mm-hmm. to what Christianity really is about. Good. Thank you. And, and I think one of the things that Alan Kreider talks about is that catechesis in the early church was habituation around the way of the kingdom, uh-huh. not just doctrine, but around yeah. how do we live this way? Well, you know, what was the first name for Christianity? The way. The way. It was a way of life. And it's not uh, just a way of life. You're, you're following an ethic. It's a, a way of following Jesus in, in a personal way, a personal relationship and commitment, being his disciple. You know, disciples walk behind their teacher. They followed his way. But, yeah, the Christianity is supposed to be a way of life uh, built upon our commitment to Christ. Yeah. Great stuff, Rob. Thank you so much. Yeah, Where are your scars? <laughs> That's a great quote to leave on. Good. Yeah, where are your scars? There's nothing worth fighting for. Yeah. Everything. Thank, everything yeah. we believe in is worth fighting for. Thank you, and thank you for all, all, right, all the all the fight, all the ways you've been in the fight over the years. Thank you.